From my home office, on behalf of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison, and with me is our producer, Kate Berry. Hello. For each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. And by the way, case is just an ethicist word for story. Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise. But as an ethicist, I can tell you that Epicurus would probably think FDR was right. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And if you like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll consider doing that. So, Kate, uh, do you want to set up the case we're going to talk about? Yeah. Well, for the past couple episodes... Even though we've been talking about honesty and privacy, we've also been using this analogy of courage to sort of help us understand these other virtues and and values. And maybe it's because things have gotten scary again with COVID. I have also in my personal life been thinking a lot about the virtue of courage and about fear. And you had something I think interesting to say about it, especially um, fear shaming, which is something I um, have experienced, but maybe haven't actually thought that much about. Yeah, I've I've been seeing more and more of this where people are, if not explicitly calling people cowards, at least strongly suggesting that there's something cowardly going on in their behavior. And I thought there's a workplace case of this, and I can't even remember who I was talking to about this, but I, w- I just want to lay out that case, but then maybe just give some other examples of it, and then we could just sort of go from there to see if we could make any headway on this kind of issue. Yeah, I'd like to try to figure out what's going on. Okay, so so here's a case that I had in mind. Uh, and again, I can't remember who I was having this conversation with, but it was an example where a friend of theirs was being, they're basically all being forced back to work. And uh, the boss of this small company, and I believe the owner as well, was basically doing a little bit of fear shaming, like, hey, you know, this is now just the new normal. Uh, We're all just going to have to get used to the fact that this is the way life is now, and we can't let fear overrun our lives. We can't let our fear prevent us from from getting back to work. So it's time to get back to work. Meanwhile, cases are now way worse than they were in March and April when this all started and spiked. Things are way worse than when things started to peak in June. We're, we're on track to get 200,000 plus cases a day, which is a, a pretty depressing state of affairs. And, and it seems like the country is now so numb to this that it's just not being taken as seriously. And so I could imagine someone getting this from the boss and being like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like th- things, things are way worse. It's not, this isn't the new normal. Things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. Every day is worse. That's that's one example of what you might call fear shaming and uh, sort of trying to make people feel bad about their fears. And I want to say something about that. But, you know, I think it might be good just to have you know, this. This is sort of coming up in everyday life. Right. I think you mentioned sort of going home for the holidays. Yeah, I know a lot of people are dealing with the discomfort of telling family members and friends and especially I think elderly family members, most of all, that for their own sake, or because they're afraid of making someone sick or afraid of staying in a hotel or something. 
that they're not coming home for the holidays or are not feeling comfortable having people over to their house for the holidays. And I think those are really hard and emotional conversations that if if people feel like I'm I'm looking at the numbers and I'm looking at facts and it just seems like there's no way to be careful enough with people in your house and sort of bringing different bubbles together. And so we're just not going to meet. And for a lot of people, their family's response is like, why don't you want to see us? This is the holidays. We need to be together. And that these sort of different values talking to each other has been complicated for a lot of people. And then I guess the question is, A, is that true? And B, if it is, what to do about it? And if it's not the case, what to do about it in, in these kinds of cases, right? Does that seem to be the core issue? Yeah, I think so. So let's get to work. I'm excited about this case, uh, in part because it gives me an excuse to talk about this ancient philosopher Epicurus, who thought that you could explain all the bad things that people do, all the evils of humanity, could be explained by their fear of death. Why would someone steal? Well, because they want money. Why do they want money? Because they want to buy things. What kinds of things do they want to buy? Well, one of them would be food, clothing, and shelter. Why do they want food, clothing, and shelter? Because they don't want to die, right? Like if, if the possibility of dying were not on the table, he thought you'd see way less theft. You'd see way less of the bad stuff. It's, a, it's our fear of death that leads us to do these things. But I would include things like anxiety, anger, other sorts of emotional states, because what, what the Greek notion of courage is really getting at is when you let your fear take control of you, you're letting a part make decisions for you that should not be making decisions for you. It should be the rational, reasonable part of you making those decisions. And you should, you should know when to resist the pull of, of those kinds of emotional states. And so I would lump anger, anxiety, other kinds of things into that. Right, because didn't they sort of understand things as either being rational or irrational? So in the irrational bucket, you could have all sorts of emotions that um, aren't very smart, but that we we do use to make decisions. And I guess they think it's it's not bad to be motivated by those things. You just want those things to be in line with your reason as well. So it's okay to be have them as like a partial motive. It's just when you let them take control so much that you just stop being responsive to reasons, or you start acting on the basis of assumptions that no reasonable person would have a have reason to believe, if that makes sense. So that's the sort of Epicurus idea. That's why I think Epicurus would agree with FDR that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Because let's go back and look at the boss and the email that he or she is sending to the employees that it's time to get back to work. Notice the boss tries to point out that there are things that they think their employees are guilty of, right? They're, you know, not coming to work because they're afraid for their own safety, which as an aside, a lot of people who wear masks and take precautions are not necessarily afraid for their own safety. They're afraid for the 3% who might die if they get this disease, right? Right. That it's often... Uh, either they have elderly or at-risk people in their own homes or in their own families or are just sort of aware of those people out in the world and are afraid of impacting them in some way. So um, to some extent, I think the boss might be misdiagnosing the fear. The fear isn't always going to be fear of your own health or fear of your own mortality. It's going to be fear of the deaths of all of those in your community. And, you know, if you feel in any way uh, an inkling to look out for the citizens of this country, fear for all of the Americans who are at risk from this. Right. And to be honest, the rest of the world, 
Uh, it's a global pandemic. It's not just a national pandemic. So I think you might be misdiagnosing the fear, but I think the more important thing is it's not like the boss is unafraid of something, right? I mean, don't you think the boss would be afraid of something here? Okay, so if the boss is saying everyone it's time to get back to work, they they might be afraid of losing profits or if they own the business, they might even be afraid that they're going to go bankrupt and lose it altogether. I guess there might be some of these other Epicurean fears that are related to that, that they lose their livelihood, they lose their house. like, And those are all then related ultimately to fear of death, right? Right. The, the thing I wanted to point out here is if Epicurus is right and that basically all the things we do and all the things we do that other people might object to ultimately have as their root some kind of fear, well, then the boss, I don't know that I want to say he's being, maybe I do want to say he's being hypocritical, right? I mean, the, the thought that it's the employees who are in the grips of their fear uh, ignores the fact that the boss is probably also in the grip of some kind of fear. I think this applies in the family case, right? I mean, what would you say in the family case? Well, they might be afraid that not getting together for a holiday really admits that this is a real loss of normalcy, that like, oh, we, we always do this, especially if they're older family members, that like, oh, this is someone's last or potentially their last Thanksgiving or last Christmas. And so you never know if you're going to get to see them again. A loss of tradition. And not all of those are fears of death, but like fears of losing really important things. Yeah. There's, I mean, these are just ways that we hope our lives would go, right? We we like the idea of, as we get older, having our children and our children's children over for these traditions that they only happen once a year. That's what makes them so special. And so these are things that are going to be in short supply, right? Everyone then suddenly takes on a kind of gravity, seems more important. And we're just afraid of losing the kind of idyllic life that we had spent our years trying to build up, right? How do we weigh what things are silly or not silly or what things are worth being afraid of or not being worth afraid of? How do we weigh different fears? You know, that that is a really good question. And that's something that I think our listeners are going to have to figure out on a case-by-case basis, right? I mean, you know, the circumstances in the family Thanksgiving, the circumstances of the the family, just, just how bad this is going to be. You know, a lot is going to be riding on particulars that I don't have details about. And then in the case of the boss and and the employees, what is likely to get lost here? You know, maybe the company shuts down those workers. You know, what's their likelihood of being employed elsewhere? Maybe the boss has noble ideas that, you know, I am the primary source of income for 100 people who absolutely will not have good job prospects once they leave, that's a different kind of otherly concern. And so it's it's hard. I mean, it's hard to make that kind of choice. But let's not shame, at least let's not shame people as though they are some kind of coward because they are worried about the lives of thousands and thousands of Americans. So I think it's just a messy weighing game on how you adjudicate these things. I think my main goal when it came to pointing out that everybody's afraid of something is this this simple tactic of fear shaming isn't that simple, right? You, you might point out fears in other people, but likely whatever it is you want is also going to be motivated by a kind of fear. And I, the, the main thing is you want to get all those fears out onto the table. All of those fears are probably going to be presupposing that there's some kind of badness there 
And then you can start to have a conversation about that, which which of these things really is bad, right? Or which of these things really is worse. But if you just start pointing out that people are afraid without zeroing in on what it is that both sides are afraid of, I don't think you're going to make any progress. So if you were able to have one of these difficult conversations and maybe you find out that looking at the evidence and weighing everything that yours was actually the less weighty, that you were afraid of something that was maybe a little less deserving of being feared. Is there work that we could all do to try to deal with our fears? Is there, how, do we, how do we try to become less fearful and maybe better at, at judging what is important and what is not? Uh, yeah, actually, I think there are things we can do to start to wrestle with our fear. And um, a lot of psychologists will tell you that, that fear really takes hold of us when we are less comfortable with uncertainty of the outcomes. And then the boss with the business, like the uncertainty of what will happen if this business does close to my workers, to myself, to my family. And so one way to start mastering fear is to start mastering discomfort with uncertainty. At least a lot of, a lot of psychologists will, will tell you that. There definitely is a lot of agreement among psychologists that taking intentional steps to getting yourself to be more comfortable with uncertainty is a kind of indirect way to help yourself be less prone to cave into your fears. And we can link to that in the show notes. So another thing I think people can do is get, be get better at moral reasoning. If most fear and anxiety stems from a belief that there's something bad about the situation, right? In the case of the boss, it's the people's fear of other people dying. They think there's something really bad about 3% of the people who catch coronavirus dying, right? The boss who's afraid of the business shutting down, well, he basically thinks it's bad if the business shuts down. This is a bad thing. So now you have two value judgments on the table. 3% of the people who catch coronavirus dying is bad. My business shutting down is bad. And now you just engage in that practice of what are all the reasons to think that this one is worse than the other? And then, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where you're fearful of an outcome, if you can zero in on what is that bad thing that's the source of your fear, compare it to the other belief, and then you can do that weighing game. And maybe if you can see that the reasons point toward the thing you think is bad not being that bad, then maybe you might be able to help mitigate some of that fear. Plus, you get practice weighing different values, which is good in every aspect of life. Absolutely. So you've worked on uh, addressing some of your fears of uncertainty and looking into the future. If you were to have one of these conversations using tools for moral reasoning, how would you have this conversation with your boss, for example? Well, that's, that's a good question. And I think it's going to depend a lot on your relationship with your boss. But let's assume you're dealing with a boss who's actually open to engaging in these kind of difficult conversations. If you, if you have that relationship, I mean, you don't have to name drop Epicurus, but you could say, look, you, you mentioned fears that we're having, but the reality is, aren't we all coming from a place of fear here? Some of us fear our own deaths. Some of us fear the deaths of others. It's not like you're fearless. You've got fears that your business might shut down you know, can't we just get all these on the table and have a reasonable conversation about which of these scenarios is worse? Is it worse for all these people to die? 
um, or worse for the business to close? Are there alternatives? Are there things we can do to stay alive that don't involve everybody coming back to work right now, right? Um, you know, aren't, aren't there sort of compromises we can make? But I think the important thing is if someone is fear shaming, quickly pointing out like, hey, anytime someone feels strongly about a moral issue, it's probably because they're afraid of the outcome. Right. Um, so let's all, so just encouraging that we all be a little bit honest, that we've all got fears and get, get all those fears on the table and get all the background assumptions and beliefs that lead to those fears on the table. And then you all can have a conversation about the beliefs, about the badness of things that are leading to that disagreement, that are leading to those fears. I mean, with family members, again, I think it's just getting all the fears on the table. If the family is making one of the family members feel like they're the coward, sort of point out like, hey, we're all coming from a space of fear here. Uh, you're, you're singularly focusing on my fear, but I ask you to turn a lens on yourselves. Like, aren't there things that you are afraid of uh, not having this Thanksgiving? There is something about not having this Thanksgiving that makes you afraid. And we need to figure out what that is, what it is that you think is bad. And then we can have a conversation about which of these things is worse. Uh, but more applicable to the boss scenario, uh, again, the thing is, is don't let people have a one-sided fear-shaming conversation where they point out the fears that you're having without in any way acknowledging the fears that they themselves are having. And remember, patience and keeping an open dialogue can go a long way. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. And I'm Kate Barry. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email me at katherineberry at depaw.edu and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. We hope you are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we discussed here and get it to work. If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best place for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.session.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.